the great outdoors, place of wonderment, sunsets, and spooky encounters. First off on today's travel special of Dead Rabbit Radio, two men riding horses encounter a bundle in the middle of the road. But what seemingly looked like trash turned into a deadly threat. And then we hit the high seas aboard the passenger liner known as the SS Waratah. We bought a ticket to go on a luxury cruise. Instead, we found ourselves sailing towards oblivion. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having tons of fun doing whatever you're doing. We got a ton of stuff to cover. So first off, walking into Dead Rabbit Command, hand in hand, are our newest Patreon supporters. Everyone give it up for Genevieve, Cara, and Rebel Miner. Woohoo! Yeah! Wee! Coming in, walking on into Dead Rabbit Command with big backpacks. They're ready to go traveling. Genevieve, Cara, 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 Genevieve and Rebel are nomads. What's the term for it where you just drive around? <laughs> You're like this normal person. People drive around all the time. They're into just traveling around America, exploring. They actually have a Instagram. I'll put it in the show notes. You're like, wow, Jason, that's so impressive. They have an Instagram. Well, no, it's an Instagram of all their adventures. They have an Instagram and a website. I'll put it all in. They're professional travelers traveling around the United States and documenting the journey the whole way. And that's why we're having a travel special today. <laughs> you know what? I feel kind of bad. Because <laughs> yesterday, Vexing was the Patreon support. <laughs> he just had on a pair of VR goggles. I, I sometimes, He's like, what? They get, a, they get stories? They get themed stories? I just walked around in a VR goggle set. I got to be honest. Like, you know, the show, so much of it is improv. Throwing again. This, even this theme. <laughs> I just threw these stories together at the last minute. I was like, oh, this will work. Sometimes I feel bad for Patreon supporters. Some some of them like I'll come here and bear wrestling. Some of them they're going on these crazy jokes, these awesome fun adventures. And then other people are like, "Hey, buddy, welcome. Get inside. Get in the vehicle. Let's go." I don't mean to do that. It's nothing personal. Vexing. Sorry if he's all sad in his VR goggles. Sorry about that, buddy. Rebel and Genevieve, you guys are going to be our captains, our pilots this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreons, I totally understand. Just help spread the word about Dead Rabbit Radio. That helps out so much. You can also right now vote for us in the Paranormality Magazine poll for best podcast. They do this every month. That's another way to get new eyeballs on the podcast or new earballs, I guess, to be specific. Genevieve, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the hair hang glider. Let's all climb onto her back. We'll climb inside of her backpack. Jump off the highest point of Dead Rabbit Command. We're going to glide all the way out to Cuba. We're in Cuba. Specifically, we're in Jaicota, Las Villas, Cuba. The year is 1915. So this is an old-timey story. It's late one evening, and we're at a sugarcane field. I'm eating the sugar canes. You're like, Jason, are you trying to lose weight? I was like, yeah, but, you know, this is healthy. This is, he- this is a lot of fiber in these canes. I'm, 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 I'm. I'm eating these sugar canes. 
two men show up and they're on horseback. They're, they're actually security for the sugarcane field. I think normally they are going to like chase away rodents or wolves or something like that. They didn't expect to see a bunch of people there eating their sugar, human locusts eating their sugar canes. They're like, ah, these two men, we're going to go ahead and call them Charles and Victor. They're riding their horses around the perimeter of this sugarcane field, checking everything out. Right when they come to the bend in a road, their horses, <laughs> they were neighing and like rearing up and making all this noise and they wouldn't go any further. So Charles and Victor hop off of their horses and they, they don't know why the horses are freaking out, but they definitely see something that they didn't expect. Laying in the middle of this road is this small white sack. This little bundle is laying right in the middle of the road and is just chilling. And the horses are still like, <laughs> not wanting to go anywhere. Charles and Victor are just kind of staring at this bundle. And at the same time, they both kind of get the idea in their head. They both get the impression that this bundle is alive. There's something about this bundle. They couldn't really put their finger on it, but this bundle is not just a sack of clothing that fell off some bum's back. It's not anything like that. It's just this bundle sitting in the middle of the road, but they feel like it's alive. And at that point, the bundle begins to move towards the two men. I don't say if it got up and started walking like Oogie Boogie, whatever his name is from Nightmare Before Christmas, or if it just kind of slithered on the ground. They didn't go into detail. They just said that the sack began to move toward... I can imagine them telling the story to their boss. They're like, hey, did you finish the perimeter sweep? Uh, you won't believe us, but uh, this this bag showed up. He's like, what? It started moving? How much sugar cane did you eat before work? Are you like having a sugar rush or something? The bag's getting closer and closer. So Charles does the reasonable thing, I, I guess. If I saw, if I was walking in the middle of nowhere and a bag started moving towards me and I thought it was alive... My first inclination would be that's a there's a baby in that bag. There's a baby in that bag, and it's crawling towards me. That would be my first inclination, right? Because babies move, and babies are often in bags. That's why there's always that warning on the bag saying, don't put your baby in this. I would figure at first it was a baby. Well, Charles probably is like, listen, we're out in the middle of nowhere on the outskirts of the sugarcane field. It's probably not a baby. It's definitely something that the horses don't want to go near. It's alive and it's moving. So Charles pulls out his revolver and opens fire. <laughs> click, click, click. He fires multiple rounds into this bundle as quickly as possible. But what happens is it happens so quickly. He probably should have stopped shooting after the first or second bullet. Each time a bullet went into this bundle, it got bigger. And he fired multiple rounds, so it got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually it was the size of a horse. This giant bundle coming towards them. He's like, I don't have any more bullets. And Victor's like, good. Every time you shot it, it only got bigger. Now it's the size of a horse. This horse-sized sack is now moving towards them. And... They took off. They just they didn't worry about the horses. They were out of there. They ran off. 
got out of the area. Because what else are you going to do, right? You're out of bullets. The bullets didn't work. The bullets made the situation worse. There's a bag the size of a horse. Because what else are you going to do, right? I mean, I, I, the horses aren't moving. So it's not like they're like, oh, no, we can't leave Black Stallion. And then you hop on board. You're like, come on, horse, kicking them in the ribs. Let's go, let's go. They're already you're just riding those horses off as a tax right off. You're like, ah, they're dead. This bundle, whatever this is, right? This big old bundle is as big as they are. Big as the horses, probably going to eat them or something like that. We're out of here. So Charles and Victor took off running. They completely left the area. The next day, when people show back up for work, everyone's getting their sugarcane tools ready. Their scythes and their like hacksaws and stuff like that. Their delicious Kool-Aid. They're like, oh, let's put a little sugar in this Kool-Aid. Let's test the good stuff. People show up to work. They head out to the sugarcane field. And when they get out to that area where the bundle was, the two horses are still just kind of hanging out there. They're not frozen in time. They're eating grass. They're doing horse stuff, pooping. But the bundle was nowhere to be seen, and the horses were left unmolested. They seemed totally fine. They didn't seem to have any sort of PTSD, which is known as pony trauma disorder. No, Anyways, two horses show up. They just find the horses randomly there. And that's the end of that story. It's interesting. I found this on thinkaboutitdocs.com, one of my favorite resources. And they're really good at citing where they get the story. Whether it's from like some defunct UFO newsletter that published a story back in 1990. Or more modern like MUFON, Mutual UFO Network report in the early 2000s. They're really good at citing their sources. This source is just cited as, quote, personal investigation. So, I don't know where they got it from. We do have an exact year, and considering it was 1915, how old that is. We have a city. The names Charles and Victor were just made up for the for the narrative. But it's a fascinating story. This kind of dovetails onto the Kangaroo Man story from yesterday's episode and so many other stories we've covered on this podcast. I love the most bizarre types of events. And, I mean, who would have thought, right, when you showed up to work that day, that you were going to be chased by a bundle. <laughs> like, you can never, ever be like, oh, man, today's the day. Today might be bundle day. Your co-worker's like, what? And you're like, oh, you know, once once every six billion years, once since the time the planet Earth was created, at least one person's going to get chased by a bundle. Your co-worker's like, what are you talking about? It happened once in 1915, but it's possible today could be bundle day as well. You would never, ever expect... If you were out in the middle of nowhere... Like Rebel and Genevieve, they're traveling, they're going places and they're carrying around their backpacks, walking around, poking bushes with a stick. I would imagine if eventually they're going to see like a, a skeleton, not like a human skeleton. Well, actually a human skeleton, but it's walking towards them. That's going to happen sooner or later. They're going to come across the ghost skeleton or a screaming head flying through the bushes or like a goat man, like some weird cryptid who's been lost to time. Like all the legends that he existed in that area are gone. They're going to be traveling through this town. All of a sudden, some starts banging on the side of their van. They're like, oh my God, oh my God. And then the goat man starts ripping his way in. He's like, ah, there's an Instagram photo. It's the last photo. They're taking it as this creature's crawling into the back of their van. You figure 
those things might happen, right? You're like, Jason, none of those things are reasonably going to happen to this duo. But you, they might. But my thing is they'll never be chased by a bundle. No one ever, ever will be chased by a bundle. You would never think that. Especially a bundle that gets bigger each time you shoot it. Like, it's just so bizarre. It's such a bizarre encounter. It doesn't fall in line with what anything else we know of. It wasn't a cryptid. It was like a pile of clothes. It was a pile of clothes that became the size of a horse, but it was also alive and sentient. It's a crazy story. I absolutely love it. It's just so bonkers. And I want to know, I've never seen this. I mean, I spent a lot of time on thinkaboutadocs.com and I've never come across the notation that says personal investigations. Even if someone at thinkaboutadocs.com like read a book on it, they would source the book. Do they actually, are they actually related to Charles or Victor? Like, they're like, yeah, I grew up every single day. Every single day, my dad, Charles, refused to change my diaper. He goes, no, the bundle, the bundle. It was just an excuse he used so he didn't have to smell baby poop. A crazy story. Is the bundle still out there? What happened to it? And the horses were alive. That's a bit of a change for Dead Rabbit Radio. There's been a lot of animals getting killed lately. Genevieve and Rebel, go ahead and put on your flight suits. I'm going to toss you guys co-keys. To the Carpenter Copter. We are leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. He didn't get to fly the hang glider. I don't know why. I don't know why he got left off. He was in a, he was in her backpack with the rest of us. But Genevieve and Rebel, I'm attaching you co-keys to the Carpenter Copter. We're leaving behind Cuba. Everyone check your pockets. Make sure there's no bundles in them. Take us out of Cuba and fly us all the way out to Australia. <laughs> The year is 1909, and we're about to board the SS Waratah. This is a fine boat, very luxurious boat, and it makes its journeys from Australia to Europe with a couple of stops in South Africa, which at that point was a British colony. And it's a nice ride. I mean, sure, it's going to take a while. You know, this is 1909. This boat's pretty slow. And how else were you going to travel, right? Unless the Red Baron flew over your house and you grabbed onto his airplane. It's like a boat or nothing. You're in Australia. You had a lot of people waiting to go on this boat. It had only been on one previous journey. The great thing about this boat, the one thing that people loved about it, because remember, man, this is 1909. Traveling anywhere was super dangerous. And if you're traveling by boat, you always had to worry about, you know, Big sea storms or pirates, even. But don't worry, the SS Waratah was unsinkable. It was designed in such a way that it could actually never be sunk. So people were like, okay, I read the brochure. You said you said it's pirate proof. They're like, we never said that part. Pirates definitely could take over this could take over this boat. They're like, okay. But you also said that it's unsinkable. And they're like, yes, the unsinkable SS Waratah. Don't worry. Once you're on board, you may die of several different ways. Food poisoning, murder, slipping, and falling off the boat. But you will never sink in this boat. You may sink. You may sink. You may get thrown off. But the boat itself will stay up. You will be able to watch it as it sails away from you. This is a terrible sales pitch. The SS Waratah had all these accommodations for first class, super luxurious. You had like the piano player, do, 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 do. You had like the captain walking around and the people are drinking wine and eating oysters. It also had the steerage class where you had all the people like, Papa, Papa, is it true? We're leaving Australia. We broke out of jail. Is it true? Is it true? There's a warrant out for your arrest. 
He's like, yes, kid, we're convicts, but we're going to make our way back to France. We're headed to Europe. We couldn't afford a fancy person ticket, so we are down here with the rats. But that's okay, son. We'll have a better life in France where I'll once again become a criminal and probably get sent to Australia. Now, this all might seem super familiar, right? Titanic, you guys have all heard of that boat. Unsinkable, you had all the rich, wealthy people on top. All the poor people in the bottom. Yes, this boat is known as the Titanic of Australia. So that's kind of giving away the storyline. This boat will sink. Or will it? This is an interesting story. It goes beyond just, you're like, oh, Jason's telling another... Tell another story of human misery, people dying at sea. This one's super creepy. The SS Wartal is getting ready for its second journey. You have the rich people on top, you have the poor people in the bottom. That section also doubled as the meat storage, so I don't think it was super comfortable down there. Like, dress warm, kids. Dress warm, kids. We're going to be sleeping next to a slab of beef. It's going to be refrigerated. This boat, because it's so old, they don't have a radio on it. So the only way they could communicate with other boats is they would do that flashing light thing. You would have like that big old... They're playing that Kanye West song the whole time. You know, they have those big old black uh, circles and then they flip it, flip, 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 flip the flippers and they would make light shine on and off. And so you'd go like, hello, boat. They would say their name. They would say SS Waratah and then the other boat would go... Charles Boatman, and then you'd go, oh, that's the Charles Boatman. And so that's how they would communicate. Unless there was an emergency, then they would say, like, SOS. Anyway, so no radio. They just had the flashing lights thing. This is the second voyage on the maiden voyage. Didn't go super smooth. The boat kept catching on fire. (laughs) Right? That's kind of underplaying it. You're like, ah, we didn't have the uh, smoothest trip. What happened? Flames, flames coming out from everywhere. They had the way they built the boat. It's unsinkable from the outside but the engine room wasn't well insulated so part of the rooms kept catching on fire i mean again it's the worst place a fire in the water is the worst place to have a fire but if you're gonna have a fire it's better to be say in the meat slab room where it's too cold for the fire to hang out versus the engine which just keeps getting hotter and hotter anyways they repaired it they repaired that design flaw and now it's ready for the second journey the captain of the boat, this guy named Captain Ilbury, was like, uh, I don't have a good feeling about this boat. It seems to tip. This is, this is what we talked about, what, a week or two ago? He goes, the boat seems to tip and it gets worse when we're loading it. And the the designers are like, oh, don't worry. That's just natural. Do you, you must not have been a captain that long. Boats often tip. And he's like, eh, it's tipping a little bit more. Plus it caught on fire. I mean, guys. I'm not being a hypochondriac about this thing. I don't really know if I like this boat that much. And so they had to be very careful about how they loaded it up. They could do it, but they had to get it just right. Well, now we're on our second journey with the SS Waratah. It's July 7th, 1909. It's on its second run. It has just left Australia with 212 passengers and crew combined. 212 souls are on this boat. It left Australia, it's going to go to Durban, which is in South Africa. Then it's going to go to Cape Town, also in South Africa. And then it's going to sail onwards north to Europe. July 25th, it finally reaches Durban. And a passenger disembarks at Durban. The boat people are like, you're not going to finish the journey? Like, I don't know if you know maps. 
but we're the quickest way to get back to Europe, your home. And this guy, his name is Claude G. Sawyer. He's like, I'm good. I think I'll be, I think I'll be better off here at the most southern part of the continent than getting back on the boat. He was an experienced engineer and he had a lot of experience traveling at sea. He's supposed to go to London. He ends up in South Africa, in Durban, South Africa, and he sends his wife a telegram. It says, quote, Thought Waratah, top heavy, landed Durban. I know you have to pay by the penny when you send a telegram. You might want to give her a little more information than that. But he sends a telegram out. See you in 18 months as I try to travel by land and have this wacky adventure across Africa to get up to Europe. I'm sure actually now think about it, he probably just took another boat. But it wasn't the Waratah. He was like, mm, I don't have a good feeling about that boat. But he only told her half the story. So that happened on July 25th. It dropped him off and then continued on its way to Cape Town and then eventually to get to Europe. On July 27th, off the coast of South Africa, the Waratah sends out a signal, sees another ship passing by called the Clan McIntyre, and it's a normal exchange. The SS Waratah sends its name. So they can kind of keep track of each other where boats are. That happened on July 27th. And the two boats are sailing in opposite directions, and they're in visual range for about five hours. That night, a cyclone hits the area. And this was one of the reasons why having an unsinkable ship was good to put on the brochure. Very, very bad weather in this area. It's not unheard of for a cyclone to hit, but even long-time sea captains were like, this is the worst storm I've ever been in. I've never been in a storm like that. This cyclone hits the area, and the SS Waratah was never seen again. People waited for weeks for the SS Waratah to show up, but it never showed back up. And apparently that was pretty common because these boats would take so long to get somewhere. Like, they would have a scheduled date to show up, but because of certain conditions, they could be a week or two late. But once boats that were leaving Australia after the Waratah were showing up at Cape Town, at Durban... That's when people really started to worry. So they gave it about three weeks before they really started looking for the Waratah. And before the investigations began, because now you had two things going on. You're trying to find the boat or pieces of the boat, survivors hopefully, or bodies. And then they're trying to figure out, they have a separate investigation. You have like the rescue part and then you have the investigation as to what happened. The boat... There's been no confirmed sightings of the Waratah since. Nothing. Not a piece of driftwood. Not a lifeboat. Not a person. Not even a body part. The SS Waratah completely vanished. And people have been looking for it since. Like, eventually, you know, people were originally looking for it as a rescue operation, and then people were looking for it to see if they could find out what happened to it. And then people started looking for it to see if they could salvage it. And then, in more modern times, it's been just to solve the mystery. This one guy spent 20 years trying to find the wreckage of the Waratah, either under the water or washed up somewhere. Somewhere, anywhere. No piece of it has ever been found. You started to have people say, oh, we found... 
this piece of wood. That was the first thing, like some wood washed up on a nearby beach. They said this was the SS Warthog. These are the remains of the boat. And it was nothing. There were alleged sightings of it within that period of that first couple days since that cyclone. You had some Navy officers, some sailors, saying that they saw what looked like a fire in the distance and then just darkness. But no confirmation. You had another boat that was in the area. During the storm, the cyclone was so bad, during the storm they saw a boat doing the Morse code, flashing their light, and they only picked up three letters. T-A-H. So it's possible, right, the Warsaw. We don't know what the message was. Probably help. Probably help were trapped in the cyclone. You had another boat say that they saw what looked like a ship tipping over in the waves. Because, I mean, again, people are like, this is the worst weather we've ever had. What could have happened to this boat? But the ship was unsinkable. So they had a really hard time figuring out like that it crashed into something or it got too much water in it. The theories came out to be it caught on fire, right? Because we knew that. But see, even then they go, if it caught on fire and blew up, that would mean debris everywhere. Whatever happened to this boat would have had to have happened so completely that not a single remnant... I mean, boats are built to float. That's If they can't float, they're not a boat. So all the wood and all the pieces of it that are light enough to float on their own, plus bodies, nothing... The boat completely vanished. And it's funny because at the beginning, people were thinking, because they're hearing this stuff, they're looking for the boat, they're thinking maybe it's lost at sea. The SS Warsaw had, this is crazy, I wonder if new cruise liners do this. It had enough supplies on that boat that it could spend a year at sea. Like, all the passengers, all the crew, everything. There was enough supplies in that boat that you would not starve or run out of water for a year. So they had hope. If you can't find it, they're thinking it's out there somewhere. We'll find it. But the weeks and the months passed on. And they've never found a single part of this boat. So the theories have been freak wave knocking the boat over explosion which they go we would have found parts of it but the boat was lost at sea and we all know including the investigators because there was a whole like lloyd's of london insurance thing that had to be paid out there's a big investigation of it i was able to find an old timey article talking about this that's like it's really cool there was an article about remember claude got off the boat everyone knew that Who's the one survivor of the SS Warsaw? So of course the investigators wanted to talk to him. He was an experienced engineer. He was an experienced sea traveler. Maybe he could give him some clue. Why did he get off? Why did he get off the boat? And when he spoke before this tribunal, the headline about his testimony, because it was in the news, this is so weird. Well, one, the missing ship was in the news, just like, when we had that plane go down, what was it, MH370 or 380, 387? That plane that's been missing for years now. It was in the news. It was such a mystery. This article, the headline was, The Waratah, A Professor's Alarm, Saved by a Vision. This is December 23rd, 1909. He's in Caxton Hall in London. 
and this this courtroom they're talking to the only survivor claude g sawyer and he goes listen i didn't feel the boat was safe just based on my experience i didn't feel the boat was safe it was way too top heavy for example i tried taking a bath i tried this would be so scary right i mean i may not realize it because i'm just a layman but this guy's a seaman and he said i went to go take a bath while i was taking a bath I could feel the rolling of the ship so much. Like we were at a 45 degree angle. Like my bath water is splashing out all over the place. And not because I'm playing with a rubber ducky. We're listing way too hard. Way too hard. And I told the crew, I said, hey guys. Yeah, I know you guys don't know me from dirt. But this boat, something's wrong with this boat. We're already at sea. He said the crew blew him off. He said you had people walking around getting thrown from one side of the boat to the other. They constantly were falling down. He goes, you know what? The second we hit Durban, which was the next stop after leaving Australia, as he's rolling across the floor, he has his hand on his chin. He's like, hmm, the second we get to Durban, I'm getting off. Like, this is just ridiculous. I don't know why I keep ordering milkshakes. They're going everywhere. I'm starving. I'm getting off at Durban. But what happened was, after a couple more days, like a day or two, everything seemed calmer. It's almost like the crew must have moved something around down in the cargo area, or they were controlling the boat a little bit better. What he's more experienced to just think, oh, it's calm weather now, the boat's better. No, he goes, they something seemed different about the boat, it actually seemed under control. And I decided, you know what? I'm just gonna keep on going. I'm not gonna get off at Durban. Whatever the issue was, it's been handled. Everything's a lot more stable now. But then, I had the dreams. Claude told this hearing, while he's in court, he said, I had the same dream three times in a row. He said, this man would be standing there wearing what he called, quote, very peculiar dress. He goes, nothing I could recognize. It wasn't a particular uniform or anything I could put my hand on, but this man would be standing there, and he was dressed in an odd way, and he'd be standing before myself and all the passengers of the SS Waratah. And in one hand, he held this long sword, and he was pointing it towards us. And in the other hand, he was holding a rag soaked in blood and i'd wake up that was the whole dream but after i had made the decision to continue on past durban once i said no i'm not going to get off on durban once i had said they got the boat ready it's not going to tip over once i had made that decision to travel on to europe to not get off at Durban, I had that same dream three times. The man standing before us with the long sword and the bloody rag. I said, I took this as a warning to leave. I knew at this point that I had to get off at Durban. And I tried. I tried to get other people to get off with me. I talked to people. I said, hey, listen. I don't know if he told them about the dream. He's like, guys, I had a crazy dream last night. 
he was telling people, I think we should get off at Durban. I, I just have a bad feeling about this boat. He probably did use the fact, you know, I'm an engineer. And if he had tried to convince them earlier, right, when the boat was so, so topsy-turvy to get off at Durban, he might have gotten a few people off. But it wasn't possible at this point. People were like, no, because it's, it's so, this was their, you know, it would be so expensive and so hard to get back to Europe that he could not convince a single person to get off the boat. The ship was stable. They weren't getting thrown around anymore. Their baths were peaceful, so not a single person got off. But Claude himself disembarked from the SS Waratah and entered the town of Durban, sending that telegram to his wife, not telling her the whole story. And he was the only survivor of the SS Waratah. And it's interesting, at this inquest, they ask, did you have any other dreams? And he said, yes. This is a quote. On July 28th, so this was it. So remember, the cyclone hit on July 27th. There wasn't word that the SS Warsaw was even missing for weeks later. Like it was supposed to get to Cape Town. It was a little bit late, but boats are late. And then about two weeks pass and it still hadn't shown up, but boats are late. It was really at the three week mark when other boats that had left after it were reaching Cape Town before it, that's when people started going, the SS Waratah is missing. For those first couple weeks, there was nobody really looking for the boat because its boats are constantly going missing. So on July 28th, it was the day after the cyclone, two days after he had gotten off of the Waratah. The boat had not been reported missing at this point. Did you have another dream? Quote, yes. On July 28th, I dreamt that the ship was in a heavy sea that a big wave came over the bows and it sat down upon her and that she rolled over on the starboard and disappeared. And he said, and they asked him, were you a passenger on, like in the dream? Were you on the deck of the ship? And he's like, no, I saw the whole ship. So I was like, just watching it. He goes, I could see the whole ship. So almost as if he's floating in the air just watching the entire ship disappear under the waters. It's interesting, you know, we, we I want I have two more things to talk about. First off, I want to talk about the idea of being warned to not to go. Right? That's a really terrifying thing and I think a lot of people, I mean, I've never had a I've never had a warning this dire or this graphic i guess like really my thing is a lot of times when i'm flying on planes i start like right before the plane takes off sometimes i'll start to get anxious and i'll thinking like get off get off the plane this is this is your final destination moment this anxiety that's coursing through your body it's trying to get you to leave because if you don't leave now you're gonna die oh no and then the plane takes off (laughs) i'm just listening to music reading a book you know what i mean like i get that inclination if i listened to my panic every single time I would get nothing done. I wouldn't even leave the house. I'd be like, because oh. there will be times I'll be like looking for my keys. And I was like, where are my keys? And I go, oh, they're right here. And I'm thinking, oh, the time you spent looking for the keys, what if that was time enough for that dog to get out of the backyard? If you had left 
earlier, if you'd left five minutes earlier, this, this is quite my existence. You're like, man, that sounds, that sounds, that sounds pretty, um, overwhelming. Uh, I, it's better now. I, my anxiety is not as bad, but I'll still get it. Like my brain's telling me like, you have to leave right now. Cause if you wait another five minutes to leave, that is when the car will hit you. That's when the dog will rush out of its backyard and try to eat you. But you can't, like, those are the type of warnings I get. They're really just anxiety attacks because I haven't been hit by a car or eaten by a dog yet. But you know what I mean? Like, I'll get that. I think it's interesting because you wonder, like, how often this type of stuff happens and people go, no, I'm good, and then they die a horrible death, and they don't tell the story. They don't say, yeah, it was really weird. I kept having these horrible nightmares about dying in a helicopter crash, right? I'd be flying this helicopter, and then all of a sudden this bloody bird would hit the front window. And then I'd wake up. That dream happened two or three times. But today's my first day at helicopter flight school. That was clearly just nerves. And then they die in the helicopter crash and they don't pass on that vision. You wonder how often that happens. You also wonder how many people, yeah, like aboard the SS War Todd self. Was he the only one to get the vision? What was that? What was the man? Who was that? What type of clothes was he wearing? With the long sword and the bloody rag. There's so much stuff to just interpret from the dream. Like, who was that? Was that... If it was death, why was he warning him? Did anyone else have the dream? And they just wrote it off. Were kids having nightmares and their parents weren't... Oh, you know, it's just, you're just having a nightmare because you're sleeping next to dead cows. Buck up, Johnny. Don't worry. That, <laughs> that repetitive dream you have about dying, I'm sure, is nothing. The one that you keep seeing your loved ones drown in front of you, I, I'm sure that has nothing to do with the fact that we're all on this boat. Were other people getting the dream? How often do these type of dreams happen? It's terrifying. Because you don't want to listen to that little voice in your head all the time because it may be wrong. And then you miss out on a really cool opportunity to do something because you're too scared to do it. Like in the mo like you ready to go for your very first day at parachuting, right? You want to be a skydiver and you can't you can't wait. You saved up your money, you're ready to go, and then that day you have a nightmare. That night you have a nightmare that you die skydiving. Do you not go skydiving that day? I mean, you waited all this time to do this. Is that really a premonition or is it just your nerves? Like, that's that gamble, right? That's that gamble. We're rolling the... You're rolling your dice and you skydive anyways, but... You know what I mean? Like, that... You can't let it get in the way, but what happens when the vision turns out to be true? He was the only survivor of this boat that mysteriously went down. And it's interesting because I have to say... He had that dream of the wave knocking over the boat and he never saw the boat again. And while that is possible, and that's one of the theories, they still go, we should have found something from the boat. Even boats get knocked over by waves, not all the time, but it used to be, we'd still find pieces of the boat somewhere, a body, a life raft, an oar, nothing. We found nothing from this boat. What I thought was creepy, and we'll wrap it up like this, is one of the theories of what may have happened to this boat. We'll take his dream at, you know, he may have had the dream where the wave hit it and it got knocked over. Maybe not. Maybe that was just not a vision. Maybe that was just a fear. But one of the theories is that the boat, the reason why we never found any pieces of the boat, and never will, most likely, 
is the cyclone blew the boat off course fire because again we saw those fires burning they go it's possible that the engine did catch on fire they were able to put it out but now they're in a boat with no way to control where it's going and the ocean just kept pushing it further and further south to antarctica and they go it's 100 percent possible that this would happen they go that would explain why we found no nothing from it because once it got to antarctica anything that was breaking off of that boat would just be floating around the arctic coastline and if you didn't spot it i mean i know we have research bases out there and things like that but they're not taking fun runs along the coastline to find the seashells if that boat got pushed towards antarctica you have a year's worth of supplies on board but there's no hope for rescue. You don't have a radio. Nobody knows where you're at. You don't even know where you're at. You just know you're at the most southern point of the world. You're on board with any passengers who survived the storm. Right, If the boat did get tipped and came back up or just got blown around off course, damaged engine, you have a year of food but you can't leave the shelter of the ship. It would be pitch black most of the time. Fresh air meant freezing cold conditions. You would have to be huddled as deep into the boat as possible at almost all times. And even then, it gives you very little protection from the extreme cold weather. Cold winds whipping against the side of the boat, slowly but surely destroying what little safety you have. You and hundreds of other people crowded into the deepest and warmest parts of the SS Waratah. But you know this can't last. You know not only will you die here, but no one will ever find your body. As you sit there huddled in the darkness, you can only think of one thing. I should have listened to the man. The man who tried to warn me. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. TikTok is at deadrabbitradio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day. I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys. <laughs>